Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Rethink Culture, the podcast that shines a spotlight on business leaders who are rethinking workplace culture. My name is Andreas Constantinou, and I'm your host, and I'm also chairman and founder at Slash Data. I see myself as an accidental micromanager who turned servant leader and over the years developed a personal passion for workplace culture. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share on the podcast or have a guest we should definitely bring on board, please let me know by emailing rethink at rethinkculture.co. And with that today, I'm super excited to have Robert Glazer as my guest. Robert is the founder and chairman of Acceleration Partners. That's a global affiliate marketing agency, and it's recognized by Glassdoor's Employees' Choice Awards for two years in a row. And he's also the author of six books, including Elevate and How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace. And he's also the host of a very successful Elevate podcast and the Friday Forward newsletter, which reaches 200,000 subscribers. So Robert, very welcome to the Rethink Culture podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a few words about the business you're leading. I think you're no longer CEO at Acceleration Partners, but you are chairman of the board, right? Correct. So tell us a bit more about Acceleration Partners so we have some context. Yeah, so Acceleration Partners is kind of a global leader in a niche called partner marketing. So we help brands build large partner programs that are enabled by software. So instead of paying for a click or paying for an impression, they have hundreds or thousands of, of partners who are driving traffic and leads to their site and they're paid on an outcome basis or a conversion basis whenever the brand wants to happen, happens. So it's a very win-win form of marketing and we, we kind of specialize in, in doing this globally for large, well-known brands. And so what has culture got to do with acceleration partners? How do the two overlap? Yeah, I think when I was building the company early on, I had a lot of bad experiences. I liked high-growth companies. A lot of the companies we worked with were these fun, high-growth venture-backed businesses. I just didn't seem like I wanted to actually work in any of them, and I had a few bad experiences. And so culture to me became a little bit of, you know, not intentional because I didn't, I didn't really believe in it even initially because so much of what I saw was stuff written on walls and kind of Enron-y stuff and Dilbert stuff that no one behaved. But eventually I realized, hey, if I, if I want to build a different type of company and do things differently than the organizations I build, we have to be intentional around that. And I started to find some examples, including kind of Southwest Airlines and Herb Kelleher, who I really admired, or people who were really had cultures that were driving behavior. And it was how people acted. And I kind of, I think I found the, the a lot of people who, who, kind of were really impacting culture and then started to be a little more intentional about, again, the company that we wanted to build and do things in a different way. I, I didn't want to build an organization that I didn't want to work at. And I wanted to make sure we were always about the journey, not just the destination. And I always said, like, I'm not, I'm not going to be miserable for 10 years to wake up for with a positive outcome. I, 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 you know, I want to make sure that we all enjoy this along the way. And what was something or what is something about the culture at Acceleration Partners you're, you're proud of? Yeah, look, I, I have this, com I had a conversation with an employee this morning a lot who was saying, who left and came back and was saying it was the best culture she'd ever worked at. And I still, I, you know, I'm like, I still am like the culture, to me, a great culture is one that is consistent with what, between what it thinks, what it says, and what it does. It's not for everyone. We are not for everyone. Our, the way we work, the industry they're in, the values, the core values that we have, they're 
one to two percent of the people and that's who we're trying to find i i have a son who's applying to university now and i always say it's similar to there's some great universities that have totally opposite value propositions and you know the person happy at the rah-rah big city university would probably really happy at the small liberal college the problem with these colleges and universities sorry not the problem these colleges and universities the ones that are they just say like this is our value prop and come here what they do better than companies companies sometimes aren't very honest about what it is that they are and what it is that they aren't they try to appeal to everyone so a lot of people have not liked working in our organization over the years. I mean, not say a lot, but I, I don't think many people would say, God, they were totally full of it. You know, they said one thing. I think maybe some people tried to morph themselves into who they wanted us to be. And I think they said, look, I, you know, you guys are a running offense and I'm a, I'm a thrower. Like, and it's just not, it's just not a good fit. But I don't think anyone would ever say that we fundamentally, behaved in a way that was different than we talked about or otherwise. Like we have a core value of own it. Some people I think like that core value of own it, but they are not that core value of own it. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a dissonance there. What's uh, what's the other values, if you recall them? Uh, own it, embrace relationships, and excel and improve. And yeah, I think that combination is 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 unique to how we work, the agency life, the fact that we've been remote, and it's a certain type of of person. If you're not someone that likes to own it, if you like kind of status quo and predictability and you want to just do your thing and not be deal with other people, like not a good place for you. And how has that value, the own it value or the other values you mentioned found themselves through the culture? Like, do you explicitly create rituals or habits or, you know, bonus schemes or what have you? How do these values crystallize or metabolize within, you know, the day-to-day -day life? Yeah. In any organization, it's super simple. The culture is just the values and behaviors that are rewarded, whether it's religion or, or, or otherwise. And sometimes the ones on the wall aren't the ones that are actually sort of, you know, either rewarded or criticized or otherwise. So we hire for values. To us, the values define the culture because they're the behaviors that we're looking for. We hire them. We ask behavioral-based questions. We constantly tell and share stories. We have a big award ceremony that's the core value of the awards at the end of the year. It's tied into our performance review. When we move away from people, you know, in that rare case, it's often a, a, a discussion of, of one or more values that just aren't aren't being met. So at the end of the day, I just think we're consistent about those behaviors and kind of showering those behaviors with implicit and explicit praise and, and discouraging, you know, the opposite of those behaviors. Mm. And was there a point when you became very conscious of culture and started changing it? So was there a, like a before and after? Was it an inflection point or was it all very smooth? There was an inflection. I think as we were growing early on, we were having some growing pains. I sort of clarified, I went to a leadership thing, kind of clarified my own core values. We had six core values at the time. We had an acronym. I got pretty convinced that six is too many because if people can't remember them or they can't kind of recite them as fast as I did, then how are they actually behaving by them. So one of the sort of adjustments I would say we made was we had a core value of accountability. And you know you need to tweak your core values when you think someone had the core value, but then you run into some like, it's like some software glitches, right? We had some people that like, we thought were very aligned, but then we had some problems. We looked at the problems 
it was this definition of accountability where some people wanted to be super accountable for inputs. So like, if you tell me to do something, I'll do it. But they didn't want to be accountable for sort of the outcome or the uncontrollables or the things otherwise. Like it became too kind of linear and we decided, well, that's not really what we meant by being accountable. Being accountable means like you took responsibility for the whole thing. And so that that sort of evolved into own it. And that was a real difference between just being accountable. You can imagine a salesperson, you know, saying, well, you know, I'll, I'll answer the phone. I'll, I'll call the people, you know, I'll get back. But I, how, how can I be accountable to a number for clients that I don't know who we're going to have or other, like this just wouldn't work. So that, that was sort of an augmentation in one of our primary core values. And did you have a case where um, people explicitly joined the the company because of the values or uh, decided not to join because of the values? Like, was it that pronounced? Yeah. So interestingly, like on our glass door, we have a lot of things historically that people say that are nice, but even some of the four or five star reviews in the cons, you can see that they're trying to like chase off the wrong type of person, right? Like we were remote early on and a lot of the reviews would say, look, this is a remote organization, but it doesn't mean you can be unaccountable, you can disappear, you can just work on your own. Like, it doesn't mean it's easy. Like, you can see people really trying to kind of discourage the people that sort of wouldn't own it. So I I wouldn't know some of the people that, you know, left or opted out. I, I suppose some people have opted out because, again, the own it is a different threshold than they perceived, where when something goes wrong and their, their sort of reaction on it was to blame all external circumstances, and that doesn't go over very well like some cultures they love doing that right like it's the clients fall there are a lot of sales teams that have never lost a deal right it is they got sandbagged by the client the partner screwed them up this to that like that's just not tolerated here so i think someone who came in and was like oh i love loan it but then when they start to see that like you can't people want to know what we can do better and how we can improve it and you can't kind of blame all these unnamed forces for things that go wrong they might realize oh this is not not my sandbox and how good have you gotten to be able to filter for cultural fit when you hire? And then when you find that it's the wrong fit, then how good at you are you at like fixing it? You usually don't fix it. I think you <laughs> remove it. Yeah, you remove um, it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've gotten pretty good. I, I mean, I think we have a, 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 look, sometimes people are the right cultural fit, but they can't do the job or they can do the job or they're not the right cultural fit. I think we really try to focus on on aptitude as culture. One, one thing that I've pushed and, and what I've seen, and this could be culture or otherwise, like I just believe in, in making sound data-driven decision. If you make the same decision over and over again, you should go with a high probability decision. I think way too many leaders celebrate an exception and that's actually the total wrong thing to do. So for example, we've found that like people that don't start well very rarely finish well. <laughs> um, I, I don't, you know, whether we miss something in the hiring process, they miss something because seven or eight of them will start at the same time in the same role and one is really struggling. I think we have found that like, you know, the sooner we can just kind of convince that person that 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 per they get into a trust deficit. Now people are double checking their work. Like you should examine if there's a training or a problem or otherwise. But when we hire seven people to do roughly the same job, we hire mostly account managers and six are doing great and one is struggling terribly. 
you know, sp- doubling down, tripling down to get that person up to average is probably a really bad investment of resources. So we will go to this person as early as possible and say, this just doesn't seem to be working out. Our experience is we can make this limp along for six months. Six months is the worst thing for both of us. Like, are you better off like pretending this job never happened and kind of taking a do-over? So I think we try to force those things pretty quickly. And so again, as some people argue, give them a chance. I'm like, again, out of a hundred times, the amount of times it started really badly and has ended up well is maybe one. So if I'm a leader and I'm going to play the odds, I should play the odds and doing the thing that works 95% of the time. Not and, and again, I find so many leaders point to an exception for a decision that they make over and over again. And it's a really bad thing to do. You should play the numbers, knowing that the number you won't it'll be you'll get it wrong five percent of the time. But if you know that something has a certain outcome 90% of the time, you should be playing the numbers. And, and when when you say numbers and culture, which is hard to measure, how do you measure culture or culture fit? Um Culture fits harder. Again, you could you 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 feel it a little more. I, the people's ma- they're making the right decisions. They're not. You know, it, it it either feels like magnets that are together or magnets that are apart. I think you just know it. I think things are harder. Decisions are harder. They just don't get it, right? I think the people just don't get it. They don't get the culture. They don't understand those pieces. So that that. But again, you also in a small organization, you you might have someone who's a great culture fit, but you hired them to be a salesperson and they're really a marketing person. If you don't have a marketing role, then you're going to have a, you know, not great sense of choice of outcomes either. And would you put then performance and culture fit on an equal footing? Would you put one above the other? Is it case by case? I put them 100% equally. Mm. The only difference is you can repair poor performance. Sometimes it's the wrong role, it's expectations or otherwise, but sometimes you can't. It's very hard to repair not a culture fit, right? You can, people try to convince themselves of all kinds of stuff and twist them in cognitive dissonance pretzels, you know, to not have to make the very obvious decision that you hired the wrong person and it's not going to work out. And is it clear for everyone as it is to you, like when someone is not a, a good fit? Like I remember in my... No, new managers yeah. really struggle with this. I think new managers yeah. really struggle with performance and and not fit. And, and, and I feel like everyone, we joke, like everyone has that name. They have the name of the person that they gave seven tries to that caused them all this consternation, lost sleep, whole thing. Finally, they dealt with that person. Everything got better. And that's the one that sort of makes them take that more seriously. Yeah, we had one case where many years ago, Someone joined the company. Uh, she asked for holidays. She booked holidays on her first week. Yeah, and it was clear to me she was not the right fit. And but it still it took three or four weeks for me to convince her manager that she wasn't a good fit. So yeah, it's really hard to have that intuition or let's say judgment. Yeah, and I've been I've, I've been wrong sometimes on the on the early tuition, but again, I think that was more of a a gut feel than a than a uh thing. And you know, I remember one time, I, look, I I I really believe if people are willing to kind of getting human and getting around these human issues and someone had started and I, they come to something and been in some training and I felt like they were totally holding back and were kind of a people pleaser and were just not willing to be vulnerable in situations where other people were vulnerable. And that wasn't really a core value, but it was a real problem from a leadership standpoint. And actually a year or two later, something happened sort of 
geopolitically or globally that made this person. And I and I said to some of the time, I think I think they're a little too fake. I think again, I just think in in these contexts and where they ended up speaking very vulnerable to the company and kind of letting all this stuff out that I had a strong feeling that was there, but that they were hiding. And I think that that fundamentally changed their relationship, both their leadership style and with the organization, because they really kind of became more vulnerable and and just more approachable. Speaking about vulnerability, which I feel is kind of an unspoken value within EO entrepreneurs organization. Do you feel that there was some osmosis, some learnings that you took from EO to your business? I mean, I had so many <laughs> learnings from EO and 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 little moments and, and and otherwise. But yeah, I mean, learning how to have those conversations with strangers, learning. I mean, we have we do the have my desk lifelines, you know, in groups. I think a little bit of that practicing of of you know from we've done some pretty intense things from doing kind of one last talks or employee TED talks. So just some organizations need to start off with meetings like, hey, what was a high and a low? Or, hey, how's it going? You know, one person I've been dealing on the team has just been dealing with a really difficult personal situation for a while. And so that's the what thing that they want to talk about every time we check in. I think that's what's kind of dominating their mind right now. And so, you know, being willing to have that discussion and kind of say, hey, how is that going? And opening up that space. Because what I probably find out otherwise is that they're a little disconnected and frustrated. And I might think it has something to do with me or the business. But in this case, it really has something to do with something that's pulling them down, going on kind of outside. But they're going to bring that to work. We are all the same person, right? And so I think, look, I, I have a strong opinion on the uh, on sort of vulnerability and emotional capacity. I think vulnerability has a place in the workplace. I think, you know, discussing these things when real stuff's going on in our lives and things that kind of are going to distract us, then, you know, we need to be able to say that and talk about that and talk to our manager or otherwise. At the same time, you have to have the ability to firewall and create some separation. If you are constantly bringing emotions and things daily into the workplace that have nothing to do with what's going on, irrespective of what people say, those people lose the trust of their managers. I think people don't, they're scared to work with them. They don't know what they're going to get any day. So like, it, it, look, if your kid is sick, if someone dies, or th these are things you want, like totally, you should bring these into the workplace, but you can't bring stuff every day to the point where you're so overly emotional that people are, don't want to work with you. So I think that's a real balance of making sure you have the psychological safety to let people have those outlets and, and stuff when they need them, but also, you know, have under, people understand the emotional capacity and resilience and that, that you can't constantly be running that kind of all the time. And there's a difference between emotional transparency and emotional expression. Yeah. And I think that by what you said earlier, you referred to the drama or, you know, expressing your emotions too much, but it's also hard to draw the line between like where you transpire and versus. Yeah. Well, let me give you an example. I think it's the context. Like if we're discussing doing a layoff, let's say, or doing something that's going to, and, and, and someone gets really upset and is crying or something around, I've laid off, I don't want to do, like, that is totally expected. I love seeing that. They're emotion, it's within the context of the issue, right? So that's the emotion you want to bring into. It's relevant, but again, not to sound, but, but let's just pretend we're talking about, you know, doing something, our strategy, and someone starts Break down, you know, crying because 
their babysitter was late for the fourth day in a row. And this is the fourth day that they've done that. I, again, I just the reality is the team is going to start to not trust that that person is in control and regulating their emotions. And they're constantly bringing, you know, stuff that is outside the situation into the situation. So I think this is a delicate balance, but there are place for emotion and vulnerability otherwise. And there's place sometimes in the same way that you don't want to go home and bring your work. If you brought your work to your home life every day, like your spouse or partner would be like, I don't want to talk about, <laughs> I want to talk about us right now. I don't want to talk about, we understand that that's a problem, right? We understand like okay. the dinner table being like, I don't want to talk about work again. I want to talk about us. So I think that, you know, there, there are cases where the inverse is true as well. So bridging that with the work you've done and the thinking you've put into personal growth. So how, actually, before I, I go into that, in your book, you talk about four areas of personal growth, so spiritual, physical, emotional, and intellectual, which is the hardest you feel for people to grow? And what was the hardest for you to grow? Yeah, I, I um, so they go in a specific order and spiritual is not religious. To me, it's sort of your North star and what you value for most people. It's their core values. So spiritual, intellectual, physical, emotional, kind of who I am, what I believe, what are my values? Intellectual is how do I learn, plan, execute, get better with discipline. Physical is how do I maintain my physical and mental kind of health and awareness. And then emotional is how do I relate with the world around me and the things that I control or not control and, and a locus of control and, and my interpersonal relationships are a big part of that. So they go in that order because I think spiritual is the foundation. I think most people aren't clear about their core values. I think they could describe situations where their core values were violated or otherwise, but they don't have that as a rubric to say, here's who I am as a leader, here are the decisions. So when I work with leaders on my team or otherwise, we we strip right down to first like core values. Why We start looking at what are the same things that are true across your personal life, your professional life or otherwise, because we can have a little cheat sheet about what makes a great leader as acceleration partners, but you will never be a level four or five leader if you don't build that on an authentic foundation. And the more I've done this work with people, I find that aspects of their core value and their leadership style are deeply ingrained to formative experiences, childhood experiences, things that like are very true for them. So someone grows up in a very low trust environment or environment where their trust is violated a lot as a kid, and that becomes an absolute core value for them. And they have small group of friends and they let people in carefully otherwise. They become a manager, someone on their team, and I've seen this time and time again in doing this work, someone on their team is five minutes late to a meeting, misses a deadline or otherwise. For me, like not a big deal if you come back in with a better idea, because that's my thing. For those people, deep feelings of this person cannot be trusted. They are When you ask the manager, they're basically thrown in the penalty box, key, the jail, the key is thrown out, and they just cannot be trusted. But they don't know how to communicate that. They didn't know it enough to say to their team, look, trust is really important to me. I give trust. Here are the ways that it can be broken. Once it's broken, it's really hard to get back. So the number one thing you want to do with someone on my team is not to lose my trust. Totally different game changer. And look, if you're 40, 50 years old, these things are baked in your operating system at this point. So being able to A, understand them yourselves, B, articulate them to other people, and C, understand that 
you're, that's how you're going to lead. That person is going to lead from a place of where trust is more important than anything else to them. So that's why I think it's the most important thing for people who really want to develop as leaders, because then they will start to see that all the same things that are true patterns and trends and strengths and weaknesses are true in the workplace are also true in their friendships and their relationships and stuff outside the workplace. And I vaguely remember seeing a course from you about developing personal values. Right. Yeah, we did this in, enough with, with I, I, when I had to figure this out for myself, I had nothing. I built a process with my team. And then, yeah, I turned that into a course because it was the thing I got asked about the most. And I was like, I don't have a really easy answer for how you do this. So I pulled all this stuff together. And it's kind of an, I always say it's an hour long course, but it's not an hour of work, but it will get you started down a path to be able to, you know, put a list of core values on your desk and say, these are the things that I should be aligning to in my life. And, and I should be very careful about decisions and work environments and what I call the big three that's not aligned. So the big three is who you choose as your partner, what you choose as your vocation or your place of work, or the community you choose to live in. I think if those are not aligned to your values, they have a very low chance of success in the long run. So for someone who hasn't thought deeply about their values, what's one or two questions they should ask to get them going? Uh, yeah, I have the questions in some some articles in my book, but basic question would be two questions, like make two lists. Think about environments where you have felt great, either personally or professionally. Like you felt in flow, you learned a lot, you were doing your best thing, you were showing up your best work. What were those environments or what was it about those environments? And then on the other paper, I, I would start writing, when did you struggle? What are qualities and people you can't stand? What are environments you did very poorly? And both what was the environment, but what were the characteristics? You might write down, you know, when I worked for Andreas, but it'd be more helpful to write down like when I was constantly told that, you know, my ideas didn't matter, when I had to do the same thing over and over again. If you make those lists, you'll start to see some of the patterns. And I again, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a full process that that's built out, but that's a great way to, to start down it. And you mentioned you normally see formative experiences of an individual affecting their values, conscious or unconscious, later in life. Was there something that triggered your three or four core values, at least the ones, and I know there's three or four that you mentioned in exploration partners, and it's probably a different set for you. Yeah. Was there something that triggered those? Yeah, and, and look, I, having run a services business for years, 20, you know, 20 years, I almost don't think there's any difference between being Maybe it's like having a psychology degree and maybe I could have gone to school for psychology the same thing because everything is a people discussion, right? Totally. The product is people, the customers are people, the partners are people. It's never Six Sigma on improving the yield on a widget. So it, it's interesting. So yeah, when people are willing to have those discussions, I just had one of those this morning with someone and just everything was, was childhood oriented in terms of their personality today. I think for me, holistically and, and in a bunch of, areas. It was that I was a very creative, entrepreneurial, sort of ADD kid in a traditional environment. I was told to kind of sit down, be quiet, follow the rules, check the boxes. That didn't really, you know, work for me. And so I didn't, I didn't do that great in school. And I also didn't really get into learning because I wasn't enjoying what I was learning. And so you know, for me, there's a very holistic tie to my purpose in terms of helping under people understand, again, who they are, what they want to be, how do they build their capacity for what they want to do. 
because you know when I when I do these presentations, I I actually read all these report cards that I had from my first and sixth grade teacher, and they didn't know each other, but they all said he seems very capable, but we can't get him interested in in, in anything. And they all use the word capable for more than five seconds. Capable capacity has capacity, but we're not seeing it. Mm -hmm. And but no one thought to be like, what it, what is it that he likes to do, and then what is he good at? Like all the things that I do, that I my strengths today, I think were identified as things that I should fix or my weaknesses back then. It's a very familiar story in talking to a lot of entrepreneurs and people who feel that they were really disserviced in the sort of traditional environment and upbringing. I remember this. Um book, The Freak Factor, forget the author now. Yeah, Dave Rendell. Dave Rendell, thank you, yeah. who says, you know, we all have characteristics and in one environment they are positive and the other environment they are negatives. And you basically have to figure what these characteristics are for you and then choose or shape the environment that you want to live in, be that your spouse or your work or, or circle of friends. So these, so that these characteristics are positive. And it's one of the uh, for me, one of the key tenets for how I, I make decisions about my environment and how it changes my environment over time. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that I talk to, uh, uh, again, our team about is when you look at these things, like, I think your weaknesses are your strengths overused. <laughs> and for a lot of people, it's, it, it's, it, it's actually they're overusing their strength. And any of your strengths can become weaknesses when you go past the kind of 100% into the, yep. you know, or, or, around the clock. I mean, I, you know, a lot of my achievement focus was from feeling a, that I was an underachiever for so long. And I think that was really helpful to me at some point, but then I also don't know how to stop right on, on the flip side. It's like, at some point I got to stop catching up or trying to, you know, Brene Brown talks about, you know, you build up this armor at some point and it's really helpful to yes. you and it protects you. And then at some, you don't need it anymore and you're just carrying it around. It's heavy dead weight. And I think that's really prescient. Yeah. And, uh, and similarly, Gabor Monte talks about trauma as the childhood experiences, which influenced you and changed your thinking so that you distance yourself from your true self. And this distancing from your true self is what hurts until you kind of circle back and find who that true self is and how to reconnect to that. Yeah, I think some people don't want to, I like formative experiences. I think some people want to get away from this stuff when you start talking about trauma, but because I'm willing to have these, I just find that at its core, people are trying too hard to do something that was important to them or to do the opposite of something that they didn't want repeated. And those are very driving forces, whether they grew up in a totally broken ho household or a perfect household. <laughs> so we all, it, it, we all have this, again, trauma is a very different definitions of trauma, right? There, But, but we, the things that were real for us or that were traumatic to us or the, we remember getting left on the corner one night and, and that was just a, formative experience that, you know, drove a lot of uh, things for us. So I think if people are willing to look into that and honor that, they'd be shocked how much of what they do today and how they value people and what the things that they value kind of tie directly to those things. One other thing that's researching your work, Robert, is extremely well published. So five or now six books, podcast, a very popular newsletter, you know, talked earlier about your setting personal values course, like you keep producing intellectually rigorous and very helpful work. 
what is the drive? Like, is there an end game? Is there like a vision you're following in your life? Is it a trajectory? I think there's a common thread. Again, I thought a lot about my values and my purpose, and I've kind of come to understand my purpose. And what I enjoy most is sharing ideas that help people and organizations grow. Because I think that great leaders and great organizations have such a multiplicative effect. Conversely, bad organizations and bad leaders have a pretty diminishing and, and traumatic effect on people. So that's the theme if you look at everything that I do. It's trying to find these ideas, boil them down, make them helpful, share it. I, I'm not the person who wants to solve something and just keep it to myself. Like I'm not, uh, you know, in the sort of intellectual, you know, property realm of that. I mean, my inherent and, and, and sort of my why of find a better way to share my inherent default thing is like, oh, how can I package this up and make it helpful to other people? Maybe people didn't realize it this way. Maybe they didn't realize this could help them or this is a resource or otherwise. And is there someone you have deeply touched with your work, your books, your podcast, your newsletter, first story you can share. Yeah, I, I get, um, and what's kept me writing is I get various notes from kind of all around the world at different time where the right message hit the right person on the right day and helped them solve a, a work problem or a personal problem or a loneliness problem. And I have kind of a folder of these over the years. And I think it's the... To me, that's sort of the the energy that keeps me kind of wanting to write is knowing that, you know, it has an impact. And sometimes it's just luck in terms of the timing or the topic or the otherwise. But, you know, trying to, you know, one of my things is kind of how, how, do, how do you have, how do you positively impact kind of a million people? I think that's like a good, a good BHAG. And so that's something that I'm, that I'm focused on. Is there one story you can recall of impacting someone's life? Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, in terms of impacting their life, sometimes that can be, feel like it could sound a little hyperbolic. Yeah. There was one recently when I talked about why people don't understand when you talk about why something is bad for yourself, but why they, if you want to make an impression, you need to explain on why it's bad for them and, you know, sort of put it to the, why should they care? Not, not why you care. And someone wrote me a note around they just had had a, a sort of the week before kind of a blowout with a grandfather and were about to sort of withhold the kids from any relationship with that grandfather. And then we're kind of using that orientation to rethink about how to and explain it in a way to him where it really it mattered to him and not to them and that he would take it more seriously. And it sounded like that helped them to be able to repair that relationship. So again, that was just one of those simple kind of examples. Yeah, like you said, the right person at the right time with the right message. Yeah, I, what's funny is having sent these now, almost 400 of them over however many years, I get so many emails. This is the best one you ever sent. You know, this is the be- <laughs> it's not the best one I ever sent. It's objectively, it's it, it was, again, it was the right time. They were ready to hear it. Like, because yeah. there's 10 different people that say that every week. So I, I just think that's always, it's, it, I, I, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that I could write a best one. I think there's a certain element of, of luck there. And it's wonderful to be touching people's lives. Uh, so anecdotally, though, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's very rewarding. Robert, I wanted to ask you for a while now, but I didn't want to interrupt you. Two truths and one lie about yourself. So just get to it and the answer at the same time. So what, what's two bits in one line about yourself? 
All right. So one was, you know, our, our, our big newspaper in, in Boston is the Boston Globe. So as a kid, I was featured uh, in a profile looking at a day in the life of a, of a U.S. kid versus a Japanese kid and kind of comparing the two cultures. The second is Howard Stern was at several of my family bar mitzvahs, uh, including my sister's. And the third was that I stood in for a pilot very temporarily during a, an emergency on a flight I was on. So I'll guess. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go for the first and the last one being the truth. And the Howard Stern one being a lie because I'm sure it was someone else famous, but not Howard Stern. So you're going after the the construct. Yeah, the people who know how to do this. Someone tell me. No, Howard Stern was true. It was. Yeah, how, Allison Stern actually is my dad's first cousin. So he was a relative before they got divorced. So he was at a lot of our family events. So which, which one was the lie? The lie was the airplane one. Uh-huh. It was very believable, I have to say. <laughs> so you fooled me. All right. Well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a good liar. Or I've done that. I've done this game a few times. <laughs> All right. So as we wrap up, a couple of questions. So firstly, is there a, a book you gift a lot to others? Yeah. The, I, I still think it's one of the, well, one of the best titles. It's also become one of my favorite topics because I think it's one of the things that affect us the most and we see it everywhere. So it's called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. Mm. And it's sort of the definitive book on cognitive dissonance. So if you don't know a lot about cognitive dissonance, I think like it is, particularly in the business leadership people segment, I think it's why we do a lot of stupid and crazy things. And so I've always loved that topic and I've loved the book and I've interviewed the authors and I'm just very, I think it's very well, well written. And as we talk about culture in this podcast, is there something that over the years of experience you think we should fundamentally rethink about culture? I mean, this sounds super simple, but culture is is just what you do, not what you say. And I think any of us who are our parent will understand that if you tried the do as I say, not as I do parenting, it just doesn't work. And so there's so many people focused on, and I think one of the frustrations in the US right now and stuff around culture and values is like the stuff that people are doing is the opposite of the stuff that they say they value. So it's sort of, flips the whole thing on what they actually value. So for me, it's that simple. Like stop talking and start doing differently. And I remember um, Arnie Malham in, his, in, in the podcast a few sessions ago, he talked about, sorry, that's, yeah. that's, that's my dog. <laughs> it's an authentic podcast. So he talked about culture reflecting leadership and how that was the key point where he realized that he needs to change as a leader because his behavior was really what people were looking up to. Yeah, you can't say I'm integrity, I'm integrity, and again, not, and then support a candidate who, or, or a leader who lies every five seconds. Like, again, you got to change one of those two things that you're saying. Maybe you don't value integrity as highly as you, you thought you did. So, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I, I really struggle in politics these days and in, in the U.S. as someone who's fairly centrist is um, like historically our values determined our policies. And now it seems like our policies or our, our, our party have created an ever shifting set of values. Like, and I, I don't understand that <laughs> the value is supposed to be the, 
the non-movable object. So a lie is a lie, irrespective of the per this person tells it or that person tells it. So I, yeah, I, I think that I think we need to have some conversations with ourselves. And again, if you ever understand, if you have kids and if you think they're going to do what you do or do what you said, or as a leader, they are going to do what you did. They are not going to do what you said. Yeah. Every parent finds this out the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you can try over and over again. It's never, it's never worked for me. They'll call it, the kids will just call you out on your BS, right? <laughs> so, as they get older. Yeah, which is why you need to treat them with respect and treat them as another adult, basically, when they're young. Because if you don't, then you treat them with uh, authority, as an authority figure. They're going to get back at you when they're teenagers, which is what all this... Yeah, or, 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 or acknowledge when something you said has been inconsistent or you're yelling at them to get on your phone and you're on your phone at the table. Like, I think, uh, you know, I think you need to... We're all fallible, so I think you need to do that. And so, again, if I think about, you know, someone like Netflix's Patty McCord, their, their take on Enron, right, was... Enron had these values of trust and respect and integrity and, like... It was all just BS on the wall, but but actually Enron rewarded backstabbing, excessive risk taking, kind of you know uh, you know cowboy behavior. Like that's actually what they rewarded. That was the culture. So the culture was reflected in in what they rewarded. It wasn't reflected on kind of the hollow words that were on the wall. You got rewarded there for taking excessive risk. They could have said that right, and that would have been a lot more intellectually honest. Yeah, maybe one day there is uh, legislation around calling us out for not following our stated values and a call for businesses to be more uh, conscious and explicit about values, right? Well, to do that, I think you just not need to not pick generic anything, anyone values. Like, what do you actually stand for? And understanding that when you stand for something, not everyone will like it. And this is the problem also that companies have around kind of weighing in in the public discourse on everything is you can't be everything to anyone, everyone. You can't, you got to focus. And even if you agree on problems, you might not agree on solutions. And so I think people are really afraid to say, look, we're not going to touch this issue or we're only going to deal with these issues because they're related to our business. And I don't know. I think I show me some business that's unfocused, whether it's on their core business or how they're supporting things that are way outside their mandate. And that's usually leads to to poor performance, right? Whether they have too many products that they're trying to build or too many causes. You know, my wife and I, you know, we have sort of a, a mandate for our charitable giving, and it goes on two to three things. And there are so many causes in the world. There's so many things that could get our time and attention, but like people have to pick and choose, right? And you tend to do the things that more directly impact you. And I think that's okay. So when people reach out to us outside of that, we say, look, it's I I know that Coral Reef is dying in the thing, and that's a huge thing. But like that's our we've decided our mandate is this. And by focusing on this, we can make a bigger, a bigger impact. So here's to knowing what you stand for and actually putting it into practice. <laughs> Easier said than done. And look, it requires making hard decisions, not easy decisions, right? Something's not really a value unless it costs you something. It costs you a job. It costs you a relationship. It costs you a client. You know, that's how you know it's a real a value. Yeah, it's a, I think that's the best definition of what a value is. It's the red line that defines the sacrifices you have to make uh, and things you don't want to do. Right.
when it'd be easy, it'd be easier to bend the change the, and there's too many people now that rather, you know, they just like try to change the rules to fit the circumstance rather than believe that the rule is a constant. So Robert, thank you very much thank you, for your stream of thought, your, um, your wisdom and letting us speak into your values and, and your way of thinking. I enjoyed it. Great. Thank you very much.